Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership interview series where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and I get to ask about women in leadership, hear their stories and soak up their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership. I am thrilled today to be joined by Ilsa Wakeling. Lovely to have you with me, Ilsa. Thank you for having me, Melissa. Okay, I'm going to jump into your bio just to give people a bit of your background before we get going on our conversation. So Ilsa Wakeling is a softball enthusiast and has been a Victorian player, coach and director for almost two decades. Named in the Australian squad in the early to mid-2000s and playing in the Italian Professional League. Ilsa always had a childhood dream of becoming a police officer and in 2006 it became a reality. By 2009, Ilsa was part of the Critical Incident Response Team, where she was not only an operator, but became a close personal protection officer, a police negotiator, and a submachine gun inspector, instructor, couldn't even get that out, Mm -hmm. um, before gaining promotion to senior sergeant at the Public Order Response Team. In 2018, as a single mum, Ilsa returned to softball representing Victoria, gaining awards for her performance and was again selected in the Australian squad playing in the international series with your son by your side. (laughs) Ilsa was diagnosed with a chronic illness, autoimmune disease, that saw her retire from sport and focus on her career and family. And Ilsa was promoted to inspector in 2021 and is the staff officer to the Assistant Commissioner of the Human Resources Command. Well, I need to know what all that is, but wonderful to um, to have you here. As I said, Ilsa, I'm going to throw straight to you. For anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, will you tell us your story and who you are as a human being? Absolutely. Thanks again for having me, Melissa. It's very exciting. I do enjoy listening to your podcasts. Um, I've loved some of the um, people that you've you've interviewed. I've just really actually find myself working out more because I'm listening to your podcast and I want to hear more. So <laughs> instead really? of doing half an hour, I'm doing double podcasts. Um, <clears throat> so a little bit about myself. Um, I was one of four girls and I was born and bred in Ballarat. Um, we played every sport known to man and and I guess we found our niche in softball. So all of us did play softball. And I, um, I was the youngest of the four and um, I guess uh, being the youngest, I always wanted to gain the attention of my parents. So my father was our coach, my mum was our manager and mum was, you know, like all all parents um you know driving us around everywhere trying to get to our sports etc and um softball was just something that I really felt I had a connection with and um I loved it didn't know at at such a young age that you could actually play professionally didn't know the extremity of what you could do in in the sport and I guess that was probably being a little bit sheltered in um my country life and uh everything that I learned through softball was through dad and um and and books we <laughs> didn't have the luxury of the internet back when I was at um you know my early teens uh so we read a lot and we learned a lot from books and um I guess it was about um, early stages my life was about getting drawing the attention and, and appeasing my parents and, and making them happy and proud of me and um, you know in, in an early age I found myself sort of drawn into perfectionism um, and and loving the sport that I played but didn't didn't necessarily understand how to cope or didn't have any coping mechanisms to negativity, well, what I felt was negativity at the time. I now understand it's learning outcomes, but, um, you know, when when hearing that you've done something wrong through your, your father slash coach, you're, you're trying to figure out how you um, no longer receive that negative input that you can, you can just hear praise. Um, I, I didn't get into state teams when I was younger. Um, and I guess through that, again, not having coping mechanisms of, of what we'd class as a failure, um, my coping mechanism was to never put myself in that situation again. And um, so I didn't find myself trialling for state again until I was in my very early 20s. So when I was 21, I trialled for state again and um, I made my first state team, um, went away to nationals. And again, I had a lot of learnings in those experiences that probably, again, drove a little bit of this imposter syndrome that I have nowadays, um, that I I don't know whether I'll ever overcome it. But at the same time, in my early days of sport, I really felt um, a lot of insecurities. Um, I felt um, 
you know, was I good enough, self-doubt, all those things that sort of creep in um, to, I suppose, any athlete. But at the same time, um, you know, it was about sort of continually improving myself and overcoming any of the challenges that I had to try and just be the best version of me. Um, my, my aims in softball, my aim in softball wasn't necessarily to um, do Australian representation, to play in world champs or Olympics or anything like that. And um, it was more so I just loved the sport with such passion that I just, the white line fever that I had was incredible. Um, and I guess those sort of skills now that I look at it has really transferred into the skills that I have nowadays in my policing career. Um, you know, the, the opportunities that I had in my sporting career, I really, um, I loved playing overseas. I loved learning about different um, different countries and the way that they lived, the way that they prepared for sport, the way that they had little habits that um, I really built in at such a young age and, again, are transferable into my policing career. Um, but I did get to a stage where I'd just been injured in Italy. Um, I'd done my ankle and I was out for six months came back and played the Australian series and then got to the point that I thought I really want to take a hold of this career that I want to look at. Um, and for me, policing was about um, having life skills um, prior to actually choosing that career. Um, so at the age of 26, I felt that that was, you know, I was wise enough, old enough and experienced enough that I could actually manage a job like policing. Um, you know, from my perspective at a young age, you how do you walk into a domestic violence incident um, having the courage to tell, you know, people in their 50s how to run their life, you know, and it's not about telling them how to do that, but at the same time you're going in to manage a, a, a violent incident. As a 20-year-old, I didn't feel confident of that. As a 26-year-old, I felt that my experiences had enabled me to have better communication skills and um, be able to take on challenges like that um, in a safe environment what attracted you I remember you telling me when we um spoke remember you telling me that back in year 12 you found a diary entry yes <laughs> I still laugh at this today because um you know I always had that desire my sister and I would always talk about wanting to be police officers and we had a um a family friend um who was a police officer and he would occasionally um intercept mum pull her over on the road and you'd see the lights and sirens and mum's heart would race and yes. we'd all be you know wanting to know what was going on and it was Robbie getting out of the car in his police uniform and coming up to the car and mum would just be you know oh thank god it's you um um, but that presence, the presence of a police officer, the safety that I felt, um, and I guess knowing someone um, and seeing him in that uniform and just feeling the importance of it um, and that, you know, it was about community safety. I really, that really drew me in. And, you know, my values, my family values, my values are, are, are quite strong in the terms of respect and, um, you know, really that integrity side of things. And I think that's what policing really represents. Um, so it it always was sitting on that um, on the forefront of my mind, but it went back a little bit just in the terms of trying to develop who I was first before I chose that career. Cause I really felt like this is this is not just a job. This is a career for me. So um, you know, get my experience, still have that drive and that passion. Um, and when I felt like I was ready, I, I spoke to my boss. I was working at a law firm at the time um, and, and they were brilliant to me. I had all these different diverse opportunities within there that, again, transferable skills. And uh, when I spoke to them, I said, I, I think I'm ready to apply. And six months later, I was in the academy. <laughs> How lucky to, you know, to know at a young age um, that that's where you want to go. You know, so many people sort of, I guess struggle and wander for a long time kind of working out where to go, but to have that anchor is incredible. I want to ask you, and I know there's so much more of your story and we'll get right back into it, but just something you said really struck me because I think it's completely transferable from the sporting field to um, the corporate field uh, in whichever space you work, and it's about getting feedback. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so I listened to you talk then. I mean, I often think we can learn a lot from athletes because I think athletes work out that you need feedback in order to grow. Mm. But what I heard you talk about and what I hear a lot of people talk about is it's very hard to shift from that feeling like a negative criticism and it becoming something you can use. Like what flicked that switch for you? I mean, did that switch flick for you at some point? Yeah, 
I think, um, you know, as I said, with um, dad at an early age, uh, my dad always wanted the best out of us. And um, no matter what, what what we chose to do, he would always try to encourage us. But his way of encouragement was sometimes um, I felt harsh. And I'd have days that <laughs> and my dad would laugh at this. I had days that, um, you know, I'd finish a game and I'd say to him, not now, You're not don't. I can't deal with this right now. And I'd have to remove the emotion because coming off the field, I knew what I did right and wrong, but I needed to change that mindset. Um, And it's taken me some time. And I would say um, when I look at, sorry, I'm flicking forward here, but when I look at when I was playing in my early 20s to going back to when I was 38, 39 and 40, um, you know, the difference in my mindset in both of those and how I accepted um, triumph and disaster is what I call it, um, are are very different. Um, and, And whether that's just because I've learned a lot in and become wiser um but in the early ages of of dealing with um feedback i did i was challenged by it because i wasn't i didn't have the tools to deal with it um so you 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 know i think the natural ability for humans is that if you say how did you go your response is always oh well i stuffed this up or this didn't go well or and it's a negative thought um and it, it's taken me some time and i learned through a guy called lenny basham uh, he was Olympian, American shooter, uh, world champion, um, silver gold medalist. I learned from him. Um, he's, he then went into mentoring, um, and I've read a lot of um, research on his information. I've, I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. And um, he changed the type of questions that you ask. Um, so the first question, and this is what I do with my son, the first question that you generally ask is, um, did you enjoy it? Because you want whoever it is to enjoy what they're doing and I, at the time, was enjoying the sport that I was playing. Um, But the next question isn't how did you go? The next question is what did you learn? Um, And that mindset, although it's the same, it's essentially the same question, it's a different way of framing it that actually makes you realise it's about the learning outcome. Mm -hmm. So once I understood it was about, well, what did I learn in that situation? The next question is what are you going to do about it? And those two questions completely change your mindset from, what failures you had to what learning outcomes can I get? And when you start asking yourself, what am I going to do about it? That question itself is so powerful because you realise you're actually replaying it in your mind on how you will do this differently. So if you're in that same situation again, I'm going to do this instead. And it already sets you up for that, you know, positive mindset opposed to finding the negative in things or or feeling that a negative um, comment is detrimental. You know, as as a sporting person um, working in policing as well, you need to have those outlooks of positive and how do I move forward from that? Brilliant. Okay, so let's head back then. So we're at the point where you've just joined the police force. Yes, join the police force. And um, it, it's funny because when you <laughs> when you come into the police force, you always have all these desires. And, you know, at, at the time that I apply, applied, it was something like 73 different diverse areas that you could go into in the police force. And I guess that was part of the attraction as well, that it wasn't just, you know, I did this for 25 years. I could diversify so broadly um, and whether that was through operational, through um, corporate, whatever the area that you might work. Um, And so in the beginning, I thought I want to be a homicide detective. That's it. That's what I want to do. And once I got into policing, I found um, I'd had a couple of foot chases (laughs) and in those foot chases, the adrenaline kicked in. And that is probably where, you know, I'd put sport on the sidelines there and I hadn't had that same adrenaline dump. And all of a sudden chasing crooks on a night shift was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, (laughs) And again, it was about that challenge of, um, you know, no one's going to, you know, run me down. Um, <laughs> so I, I felt that that was a little bit of a passion and a little bit of a that that uh, adrenaline dump that I was looking for post sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it it I looked at the areas um, or the diverse areas that we had that would actually give me that same adrenaline dump. And that's where the critical incident response team came into it because you know we we predominantly would do um, sieges, barricades, suicide intervention, ed- edge weapons, all those higher end jobs. And the purpose of CERT was they were that stopgap between your uniform policing and your SOG, so your special operations. And um, these guys would uh, still do a little bit of contemporary policing, but at the same time you could start to really learn how to um, understand 
major jobs like sieges and barricades and um, you'd still do foot chases and things like that. But at the same time, it was a higher end sort of type of job that, um, you know, you could hone in on your skills. You could then develop different habits. And, um, and, and to me, it was about critical incidents and how you could actually be calm in that, um, in that environment. I, I, uh, I mean, I'm fascinated by this. I think at one point I might have wanted to be a homicide detective too. I think, you know, who, who does, who doesn't along the way? How exciting! <laughs> to go into, you know, LA law into the courtroom and. There's a lot of questions there. I want to ask you about the negotiation side of it, mm-hmm. and I guess. It's, this will be fascinating because there'll be so many people listening. You know, I've never interviewed anyone in the police before, so I've never had this sort of conversation before. But there'll be people thinking, wow, how do I translate some of these, like, incredible situations into what I'm dealing with? And you can, right? So, you know, I think a lot of people are, we, you and I spoke about command and control leadership, so old-style kind of you say or I say you do. Mm-hmm. How well does that work in a uh, in a the sort of situations you found yourself in as part of that critical incident response team? <laughs> well, it, it is quite interesting because I think even over time, so from being at CERT, that was in 2009 to 2016, um, uh, the police force has developed a lot in our emergency management since then. Um, so I, I sort of look at uh, command and control back at CERT and it was it was highly important because you needed to know where your people were. As a negotiator, you needed to have your cordon in place around a, a, an address um, to make sure that things were secure before you commenced your yes. negotiations. So there was a, there's a lot of tactics. There's a lot of um, st- strategy. Um, and I, I really, I, thrive, I love that sort of stuff. I love being involved in that type of um, environment. Um, so the terms of um, control and command sort of structures, I think it's very set out in policing. Having said that, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be like that in the way that you manage your people. Um, when we have control of a situation, I really feel that the transformational leadership is essential. Um, you know, I, I'm, I really developed who I was as I became an acting sergeant insert um, in the terms of understanding when I should be uh, transformational, when I should be transactional um, or autocratic or almost. Um, And I think those roles are really important in policing. Um, If you've got opportunity to stop and ask people questions and ask for their opinion, the buy-in that you get back and the difference of opinions are great because you can then formulate a response that you think is the most appropriate and your team's going to be on on board with it. Um, I think that's highly important. But they also need to understand that um, as a leader, you needed to be able to make the decisions there and then if necessary. So time-critical decisions needed to be made. Um, so when that happened, they had the confidence that you would make that right decision because you've had opportunities of that discussion and when it's time-critical, they know that you'll make the right decision. So um, I think, yeah, in, in the sense of emergency management and time-critical, um, absolute autocratic, um, but, yeah, it, there is a fine balance and it's about understanding that balance and making sure that your people still have the opportunity to have a voice, um, especially when you're in a position that, you know, some of our jobs, for example, a siege might go for um, anywhere between 20 minutes to three days. Uh, it, it does depend on that. And so when you've got a, a three-dayer, for example, you do have opportunity to sit back and um, talk through solutions, talk through options and um, get everyone's opinion. And someone, you know, I had I had a, an amazing boss. Um, he, uh, he was a sergeant at the time and he's got army background and um, quite significant army background. And he would always, would get in and do a briefing before we went into a job. And he would ask the most junior person their opinion. And that, to me, just stood out. That highlighted to me that it didn't matter what the experience of your boss was, he still had the respect to ask that junior person, what do you think, and take their opinion on board. And he would change his response if it was required, given the the the, the opinion of the most junior member. Um, and that really stood out to me because it demonstrated that it wasn't that he, he didn't go in there and say, I know everything because I've got all this experience, therefore your opinion doesn't matter. 
hugely important in policing. So I think that is transferable in any role, in any leadership role. You actually did negotiations too, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. What leadership skills did you learn as part of that? Um, You know what? It's funny. I... I probably learned um, obviously communication skills, and um, that is clearly essential. It doesn't necessarily work in my personal life because I still can't get my son to do certain things. <laughs> I think he's manipulating me more than I manipulate him. <laughs> That's a whole different uh, conversation. <laughs> exactly, um, but the the skill itself is really quite um, exceptional. And at the end of the day, um, every person understands it and knows how to do it it's just actually having naming conventions for it um it's just understanding when to use certain terms or certain techniques in situations so i i think it was really um it it taught me to de-escalate a lot um and i think that's a really important thing and especially in policing uh, if the force isn't necessarily required to be used then it's good to be able to de-escalate that situation um it taught me compassion and i think it really honed into what i think is my feminine feminine leadership style yes. um, and you know we we are compassionate people we do um have humility we um we we like to listen and understand what the person is saying i think that's where negotiation really tapped into my authentic me as a leader so is there a point you would call out you know i'm really in, really curious around um how intentional people are in their careers and the direction their careers take. Is there a moment in your career that kind of stands out as an aha moment for you about what I'm going to do? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, again, this is going to be slightly different, but um, my aha moment was uh, I just had my son, Hunter, and this is in 2015. Um, I'd only... I'd, I was obviously on light duties um, during my pregnancy and I'd, I'd only taken five months off um, when I'd had him. Um, and I did have an emergency cesarean. So um, right from that perspective, I worked with my trainer, um, who was my, at the time, husband's trainer, um, and um, got myself physically fit to be able to get back into work. Um, so I did a good three months, four months of just training, um, making sure I didn't do any more uh, damage. Um, it was all about rehab and getting back into that peak fitness. Got back to work, and my first day back at work, um, I was told, "Oh, you're going to be the lead negotiator." And I thought, "Jesus, like I've just been off for <laughs> light duties, uh, five months off, you know, full off." Um, I came back and did my qualifications. I was ready to go, but you know, I kind of wanted to warm into that role. Um, anyway, so yep, no worries. I'll be the lead negotiator in this job. It ended up being a nine-hour siege. And in the siege, um, the offender had actually pointed a firearm at me. Um, now, in that circumstance, you, you take cover, you, you set your position up again and you, you start your communication again and you're trying to still take control of that situation. All you're looking for is that, um, you know, that um, uh, peaceful arrest or, or safe arrest. Um, so... I'd gone, I'd been at this job for nine hours. I'd managed to um, negotiate him out. Um, it was a safe arrest, no injuries to anybody. And it wasn't until I got in the car and I was on my way home and I thought to myself, I've just been at a nine-hour siege where a guy's pointed a firearm at me and I didn't budge. I took cover. I did all my, you know, the muscle memory, um, took cover, did all the safety aspects in it, but I didn't budge in the terms of I've now got a five-month-old at home and... This is the circumstances that I'm facing with it at work. You know, what happens if it went the other way? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not certainly, um, uh, it probably sounds extreme, but at the same time, it was really an aha moment from my perspective that I thought, you know what, there's a lot of people in this organisation that can do this role or can step into this role. I need to start looking at my promotional pathway. Um, and so from that point forward, it was about, okay, I, I want to start looking at upgrading into an acting sergeant role, uh, whether that was internally at CERT or whether that was externally going back into uniform policing and getting that contemporary policing again um, and really start mapping out 
how does my pathway look? Um, I think I'm done with, you know, being operational to that extent. Um, now I want to be more in that leadership role in, in charge of situations where I can, you know, make the call, be the commander opposed to um, being the operator doing the work. So, yeah, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of that moment that you just, it, it rushed over me realizing <laughs> that uh, this is quite risky um, and I, as much as I love it I think I'm ready. Mm. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. Wow, that uh, that would be, you know, a pretty significant um, moment. I, I want to ask, you know, if I go back earlier to talking about, um, you know, how you were getting the adrenaline out of your role, which drew you into some of these sort of things anyway. How do you, do you still need that today or is that sort of, has that shifted that need? Yeah, I think um, I think it, it's slightly shifted. Um, I think I still require that adrenaline dump and I think that probably comes from just working out and being fit and active my whole life that um, I've just needed those releases. So I think it's probably translated more into, um, you know, going uh, for a run three times a week uh, allows me to release, I suppose. Um, my gym sessions are highly important to me um, and being able to get those in as well not only gives me that healthy mind, healthy living, um, you know, with my disease, um, it, it helps my body continue moving as well. So it's a necessity through that. But at the same time, I, I don't think the dump per se is what I look for now. I think it's more um, I, I really just feed off um, all the other leaders that I tap into, my mentors that I tap into, and I'm really more focused on um, how I continue improving as a leader, um, as an inspector, uh, and especially in the role that I'm currently in as a staff officer, how I can, um, you know, be the best me in those roles and offer the best service that I can, um, whether it's to to my leader or whether it's to the people that I work with. So, um, so you've got quite specific routines, don't you, around, you know, it's, it's super important. I think in any role as a leader, it's super important how you show up. I can only assume that gets magnified um, with some of the work that you guys do. What do you do to make sure you kind of show up consistently? Yeah, it's that's a good question. Um, I am quite particular with this sort of stuff and I, I, I'm a big believer of getting your wins early. Um so I, I and I've really um, adopted this a little bit more out of a couple of programs that I've been looking at, um, just to try and get an edge every now and then of um, different ways to show up. Um, so my mornings, for example, um, I, it, my my night is focused on getting a minimum of seven hours sleep, and that's a minimum. Um, I'd like to get eight and a half as a maximum, really, because if I get more than that, then I just don't sleep well the next night. Um, but yeah, it's all based on sleep, making sure that I've rested my body enough. Um, in the mornings, my alarm is a gradual alarm. Uh, I don't like the ones that just blare and wake me up. Um, so with the gradual alarm, it's about getting natural light. Uh, it's about mobility exercises, breathing exercises, um, and I do a hot and cold shower. Um, I don't touch any electronic device until an hour after I've been up because I want to be stimulated by what our natural environment is, not necessarily um, sit there and scroll through my phone in the morning with that unnatural light. Um, so those those um, those little wins from my perspective, you know, even making my bed, that's the first thing that I do because that's a little win. Yeah. It's nice to get home and see that it's made. <laughs> But uh, those little little habits from my perspective is just getting me ahead, um, you know, jumping in my car and feeling ready to come to work. I feel healthy. I get, you know, a good um, 600. Have you always done that or is that has that been something that you sort of introduced at a later stage? Um, I probably introduced it, I want to say it was about two years ago, which is probably a, 
it links into my disease as well. Um, so when I was first diagnosed with dermatomyositis, um, I it's a skin and muscle disease, and it um, I I dropped from a size 11, 12 into a size seven within two weeks. My muscles deteriorated, and my skin just came out in a rash. Um, I had muscle biopsies and skin biopsies done to determine what it was, and um, it was a um, autoimmune disease that. Uh, is about inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the inflammation came through high stress, um, not being able to manage those um, situations as best as what I thought I was, over overdoing it. Um, so a bit of burnout. Um, I was certainly doing far too much in my day um, and minimising things like sleep. So if I couldn't fit my two workouts a day, because I used to work out twice a day, if I couldn't fit that into my day, I'd make it fit and I would sacrifice sleep. And so to, to try and survive off four or five hours, some people can, but I certainly can't. Um, and that's when things really went downhill. So to understand the inflammation in my body, I needed to work out what I had to do to set myself up to best succeed. Um, and I, I'm not that type of person that if something happens to me that I just accept it and, and fold, um, I will sit there and research the hell out of it to figure yeah. out what it is to get on top. And so that's when that sort of really started to tap in. And I, as I said, I've sort of started to look at different programs. There's a couple of programs that I've worked with um, where they do micro habits um, and understanding the benefits of them. Um, so the breathing techniques, the, I did a lot of yoga, I did a lot of stretching, um, I did a lot of things that were about that inner health um, and finding that calmness. And um, the micro habits from my perspective is something that have just, it's sort of, um, it, it's just a great way for me to start my day. Uh, I don't necessarily allow myself enough time to go out for a 20 minute walk. Um, you know, I try to get into work no later than quarter past to half past seven every morning. Um, and in the role that I'm in, we might do 10 hour shifts every day for the week, which can be quite, quite tiring. But at the same time, um, you know, again, it's about starting my day right, knowing that I've had enough sleep. I've I feel my body well. Um, I get my exercise that I need. I do my breathing exercises. I reduce the amount of stress that I have, and it sets me up um, in my role every day to be my best me. Also, it's fascinating. Um, you know, it's this this whole subject about burnout and um, you know autoimmune diseases and stress and things like that. I mean, there is so. Um, conversations everywhere around that right now and it's interesting how for so many of us it takes getting to that point before we realize okay actually I need to make some changes how do you as a leader keep an eye out for people in your own workplace these days um you know is that something that you're conscious of 100 percent, absolutely uh I I think having been through it um it really probably gave, gives me that different perspective um, I, I would like to think that workloads is something that I really try to pay attention to. Um, I like to speak to the people that I work with to make sure that, you know, if they're under pressure, what can we do to alleviate that? And how do we share that workload? Um, it, it you know, I work with some people that are, are part-time mums, um, uh, or part-time employees um, that, you know, they feel the pressure coming in because they're not here full-time. So they try to fit what they could do in a five-day week into that three-day. And, you know, I feel for them in those circumstances because that is a mindset, I think, that we need to change that mindset for them to understand that the time you're with us is valuable. Um, if, if you don't get that done in that time, we'll manage that. Um, you know, the world's not going to end. Um I, I think from my perspective, um, that compassion that we show as female leaders um, really demonstrates that we have that awareness. Um, we can identify the signs. Um, and I, I must certainly say to my staff, you know, take a step back, um, work out our priorities, and let's go through that, those lists of priorities one by one. It's not, it's, it's not um, dire for us to, you know, if we miss a deadline, it's the worst thing that happens. We get a slap on the wrist or, um, you know, someone's unhappy for a short period of time. But at the end of the day, it's not intentional. We we can only fit so much into our day. Um, if we can't fit it in, well, we've got another day. Let's do our, I, I do do the Ivy Lee method where I write my list of six priorities the night before. Um, so then when I wake up, I can smash out 
those priorities. Um, and that, again, is another way to start our day well because we know what's important um, and if we have, have it written in front of us, then it's um, actually easier to run off. So, um, you know, some of the challenges right now for a lot of leaders is that they're, you know, they haven't led in environments before, um, you know, right across the community. I think there's... Um, you know, more challenging economic times. And sometimes what you can see in those situations is people tend to fall back on command and control or some of that situation you're talking about where people get fearful about their jobs. And so, you know, it's head down, work harder, um, you know, smash those priorities out and, and people feel those expectations. How as a leader can you guard against, you know, maybe reverting back to your own type in those sort of situations and, still still supporting people through something like that yep uh, absolutely get that <laughs> I would say um, as a leader my biggest thing is understanding when to disconnect um, I think it's highly important that uh, when I'm at work I am on I'm focused by no means does that mean that the the entire whether that's eight ten hours that I'm at work that it's go 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 the whole time because you obviously need to take a step back um but to me it's about recognizing when enough's enough um so I like to think that in the position that I'm in and I, I can respect and understand that some positions don't allow you to disconnect don't allow you to switch your phone off but if I get at home get to home at uh, 6 30 at night then I know that it's time to turn that phone off and I don't have to be contactable unless they want to call me on my own personal phone because it's dire straits and it's absolutely necessary. But I need to switch off because otherwise my mum will continue going. I'll hop into bed. I'll still be thinking of it at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'll be awake thinking about those things. There needs to be a switch off. Mm -hmm. um, if I don't have that, then my mental health will suffer. My own health will suffer. Um, the people that I'm working with will probably suffer because I'll miss some key indicators that tell me how they're feeling at the time. So, yeah, disconnect is really important from my perspective. It's important to our organisation as well and we really make a point of it. It's part of, you know, our EB. We we make sure that people are understanding the importance of it um, to be able to just um, reset how hard was it um, because when you were diagnosed with the autoimmune issue, you also stepped away from professional sport, didn't you? Yeah. How yeah. did you navigate that? Yeah, that was um, it was almost like a pride, a hit to your pride. <laughs> that You know, I thought I was invincible. Um, and as I said, I was doing far too much at the time. I know that autoimmune diseases don't just come on, that it takes time for them to get to that stage. So it might have been a good three, four years that it was, you know, an underlying issue that I just didn't identify at the time. I was going through, you know, a separation. I was going through our, our court proceedings, being a single mum, working full time. I'd just been promoted to senior sergeant. So I was doing a... Um, a Bachelor of Arts with Honours at the same time um, and then trying to play professional, well, not professional, but semi-pro sport. That's that's a lot to take on. Um, but my problem was because I'd gone through the separation, I was trying to um, be me. You know, I love doing this. I love doing it. I love learning. I love being a parent. I love my work. You know, everything was, I loved it, but I didn't do it in moderation. Um, so I felt um, when the disease came about, it was probably... At the time, it was I was beside myself because all I wanted to do was just continue doing me. Um, but it made me stop, um, reflect, and understand how much pressure I was putting on myself. Um, understand that yes, high achieving is you know in a lot of us, but at the same time, um, I need to really map it out. I've always been one that would I would set out my goals, and whether that's short or long term, I'd set them out, and it was about process. But I had almost gotten lost in that process because I was so busy wanting to just do everything. Um, so it it was really challenging. I mean, through my policing career and taking a step back from sport um, from time to time, um, probably allowed me to accept it a bit more. But um, you know, having been back in that. Australian squad and working with people that were playing with people that had that same passion and desire for winning um, but having fun while we did it as well um, it just gave me such um, 
such motivation um, and to have that removed from you it was you know it was it was hard it was a challenge um, mentally I'm, I'm that one person that um, looked at COVID and went thank God because when I got the disease <laughs> I was isolated um, you know I couldn't be in the sunlight um, there was so many things that meant that I needed to isolate myself so everyone else being isolated made me feel normal um, so I, it actually helped me get through my, the early or infancy of my disease. Um, but now, you know, I, I was on heavy medication at the start, um, going from that heavy medication, we worked around it. I'm now doing IVIG, which is intravenous immunoglobin. So I do that every six weeks and that's a top up of my antibodies to try and get my body to produce it naturally. But it's the, the part about it is it's actually afforded me to understand my own priorities, what's important, reconnect with friends reconnect with family um understand that um you know while i was in that environment of everything being frantic i wasn't a perfectionist or good at every, everything i was I've, i was lacking everywhere um, whereas now as a mum my phone switched off when i have my son and i give him a dedicated couple of hours at night that we just either read, um, learn, play games, whatever it is, I dedicate that time at work, I dedicate that time. And um, I actually think it's been a blessing, to be honest, um, as much as I still live with it, and it's still going to be another, hopefully only a year that I can get to remission. At the same time, it's allowed me to recognise and see what I was actually doing to myself, and probably more so internally. Um, so it's um, not something that I want, but at the same time, no, it's it's something that's made me reconnect with so many different avenues of my life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was you answered the question I was going to ask really, which was, um, you know, I I share similar to you. I get excited about all the things I could get involved in, and I want to put my hand up and I want to do all these things. And sometimes there comes a price associated with wanting to do all of that. I was going to ask you about prioritizing, but you you went there. Um, as part of that conversation anyway. So do you still feel or, well, do you still? I don't think I ever asked whether you did, but do you feel ambitious about your career into the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I've i I've just um, uh, joined up, if you, uh, for the lack of a better term, with a new mentor um, and my current boss at the moment, um, because he's my boss, we we try not to use the mentor term. But you know, I'm, I'm actually as an inspector, you usually get rotated, so it's between two to five years. And as a staff officer, you get rotated, probably around that two year mark. So I've got about six months left before I have to be rotated, um, or not have to, but before I will be. And um, you know, um, I I'm excited um, about the next opportunity. The role that I'm currently in, I've not learned as much as I have in the last year and a half um, under this guidance, under this amazing opportunity that I've got. Um, so I'm very excited about what can come next. Uh, and there's a few different options that I'm sort of looking at and weighing up as to what's best for me. Um, I absolutely have a desire to look at the next rank, but I also want to really get into the nuts and bolts of this rank currently. Um, you know, we've got such great leaders, um, men and women in our organisation, um, that I'm really learning a lot from. And I'm really fortunate to be able to be in a position now to watch how they operate, um, to really get into the intricate side of things. As mentioned earlier, I, I work for an assistant commissioner and he's, he's exceptional. He's been in the role for 10 years and he's really... I've watched him develop even in the last 18 months on how he communicates with people and how he understands people, the sympathetic side of things. He he has quite the leadership skills that I just look at and, and admire um, and hope that one day I could have those skill sets. Um, so I think, you know, if, if you get to the rank of inspector, I think you generally um, have that desire to keep motivated and moving forward. Um, and, and again, even so, you're still going to diversify because it's between two to five years that you're going to be rotated through. Um, and that will, you'll either um, try and get a direction of where you want to go or that will actually put you in a position that um, will, will be tailored or suited to what your skill sets are. So I think it affords you that opportunity to continue learning. Um, but yeah, I, I, my goals, uh, you know, I have a six year plan at the moment. Um, I have my short little 
um, short-term goals as well. Um, even in the terms of um, my daily routines, um, I quite often reflect on my way home, just working through things that I could have done better. Um, so, yeah, my short-term goals, I, I reflect most nights when I've finished work. And it might be on my way home. It might be um, when I get home, I do diarise a lot of notes as well. Um, but the point of that is just continually working through um things that I identify through the day that I could do better um, and that will allow me to come back the next day and work through what those little short-term goals are. Um, but in the terms of long-term um, long-term goals, you know, I've, I've absolutely got desires to, um, whether it's continually working as an inspector or whether it's taking that next step up, um, you know, between two to six years is, is the, the period that I usually look at. Amazing, intentional and, and reflective about all of that. Um, also, you know that I'm fascinated around um, why there aren't more female CEOs broadly. And so I'd love your perspective on that, but also love to know, you know, when you sit in the police force and look around, do you feel like you can see those ambitions could be possible for you if you wanted to pursue them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think having a look at the people um, in our executive command at the moment, there are more females coming through there and they're very strong um, leaders and and that really inspires me. Um, you know, I look at um, you know, our assistant commissioner in, in PSC. What a, PSC is our professional standards. What a challenging role, um, yet she makes decisions. She sticks by her decisions. She's strong in the um, decision-making that she has. Um, yet she still shows compassion, um, you know, having uh, individual chats with her. Uh, she demonstrates, you know, that that strong female leadership um, and the female aspect of it is that humility, is the compassion, is the care. And um, I, I feel that um, we are in a position now that we are, it, it's a slow progression and I think that's natural. And I, if you look at um, Victoria Police as an example, you know, our numbers of um um, gender is almost it's starting to improve um, having said that sometimes when you look at policing it's not necessarily the most desirous job for um, females let alone males like it might not be a desirable job for a lot of people but at the same time um, I see that we are changing um, it's it's certainly not going to happen overnight but I actually think that's a blessing as well because it is hard work to um, get to where we are. Um, it's a hard work to get to the ranks above me. Um, I'm I'm certainly desirous of it. I'm certainly proud of where we are, um, are at and where we're going. Um, I can understand that um, a lot of our skill sets, um, I think, you know, from discussions that we'd had previously, a lot of our skill sets as females tend to be the desirable skill sets nowadays for CEOs or for deputy commissioners or, um, you know, assistant commissioners in Big Pole. Um, so I I do see a lot of change happening, um, especially if I look back to my 2015, 2016, and a lot of um, uh, challenges that I had back then for the lack of understanding of um, what females bring into that work environment. So um, I see positives. Um, it's just going to take time. So my final question that I ask everybody is from your perspective, so what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Mm, I love this question. <laughs> And I must admit, I have listened to the podcast and had to listen to what other people are saying and feel that um, I probably have very much a similar opinion where I think it is about being authentic. Um, I think it is about bringing the real you to the picture um, and not being frightened of that. I, I, I think that's something that I've really developed um, over my last probably seven or eight years. Um, and that's in the terms of um, I recall making decisions, you know, back as an acting sergeant and questioning those decisions, questioning why I had a different opinion, um, um, going to a course and being told in the, <laughs> sorry, I'll digress for a second on the answer. But I went to a course and they said, just answer, you know, do the, do the questionnaire. And once you've done your questionnaire, then you'll be categorised into this group and no one's going to be by themselves. And sure enough, Ilsa's the one that's sitting in the corner. Everyone got to go in their corners. I was by myself. Oh, 
<laughs> at the time I was humiliated. I thought, no way, like how could I be complaining? They were all females in the room. But at the same time, um, I celebrate that now. Um, it's okay to be different and think different. And I want that in the team that I have. I think that that brave feminine leadership is being uh, accepting who you are and being the true person that you are and bringing that to work every day and demonstrating that it's okay. Um, yeah, our, our qualities, as I said earlier, are definitely ones that are now sought after in the terms of what type of leadership we're looking for. So I love that I've got compassion. I love that, you know, although I have that alpha female style um, that I've cried with victims or I've cried with offenders and I cry with my son when he hurts himself. <laughs> I love being like that because, you know what, it's it's who I am and I'm not prepared to change who I am to tailor anybody else or suit anybody else this is me and I consider myself a leader. I consider myself someone that others can look up to. Um, and that to me is what brave feminine leadership is. Elsa, amazing. Um, I've really loved our conversation and there's no doubt how authentic you are and how prepared you are just to tell your story kind of what's and all um, as you've navigated through your career. So from all of us, um, thank you for the incredibly important work that you do and thank you for um, sharing some of that and sort of shining a little light on, on what it's like to do what you do. Can't wait to see where you are in five or six years' time. <laughs> thanks, Melissa, and thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And Absolutely. as I said, I've, I've loved listening to your podcast, so I look forward to more. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.